Thank you, Bill. It's so good to be with you guys today, and what a beautiful church, what a beautiful time uh, of worship together. You know, it, this happened in the earlier service, and it, so I think it's just the Lord is up to something today, but it's a really special thing when everything you've prepared to speak about, He's already communicated through the time of sung worship, you know, because I think it's sort of reinforcement. It's, it's sort of the Spirit of God. This is the message He's trying to speak to us today. So it's a privilege to be here. Um, we have the utmost love and respect for Pete and Sammy and... Uh, uh, there's loads of people in our church in Colorado Springs who want to, when they grow up, be just like Pete. So um, you're, you're, you're privileged to have him uh, as a pastor. I've been at New Life Church in Colorado Springs for 15 years. The church itself is 30 years old, just celebrated its uh, 30th year. And it doesn't sound like a long time compared to many English churches, but uh, we do have a, there is a, a remarkable story of God's grace and redemption that some other time we can, uh, I can tell you about more, more fully. But um, we're, we're just thrilled to be part of what God is doing in our city as you are uh, thrilled to be part of what he's doing here in Guilford. New Life is a um, multi-congregational church, so there's, there's three at the moment, three different congregations. One that we call kind of the mothership on the north end of town, Sunday mornings. We don't call it the mothership. We call it New Life North, but, you know, we call it the mothership. Um, and then there's a Friday night congregation that Pastor Daniel Grothy uh, pastors, and I think you might have heard from him uh, last November uh, and then I pastor the downtown congregation, which we started about three years ago. So there's overlap. Our, our, our preaching tends to stay on the same series, but all of our pastoral and ministry life is kind of uh, set by each congregation. You know, it's, a, it's like a functioning church, but then there's overlap in some of the way that we pool our resources and all of that. And, and um, so, but, but we meet downtown, we meet in a school, uh, kind of in the oldest school in our city, which isn't, again, not very old by English standards, 1800s or something like that. No, not, not even that, 1900s. Um, and, um, but coming here this morning and seeing the people setting up and getting things ready and making this theater um, a, a church and a sanctuary uh, warmed my heart because it reminded me of being home, you know, all of the people that come in. And it, it's just, there's so many of you that serve each week that nobody knows. And nobody knows what you do, taking care of the children, getting the coffee, all of this stuff. So thank you for turning this place into a house of God and a house of worship each Sunday. It's really amazing. And so, and I, I it helps me feel right at home here. So the series that, that um, Pete is, is wanting to launch, and this is the first week of it. He's, he's given me the job of trying to launch this series, so hopefully we do okay. But it's called Game of Thrones. Now, I've never watched the show or read the book, so I, I'm, I'm sure that the title of it's not uh, necessarily an endorsement of, of either. But uh, it, it, is, it is meant to make us think of. It's a way of making us think about the kingdom of God. And it's a way of making us think about what Jesus is like uh, as king and what it means for us to participate in his kingdom because he's the one seated on the throne, but there are thrones prepared for us, if you will, in a, in a manner of speaking, in which we are invited to reign with him and we're invited to, to, to participate in his rule arriving on earth as it is in heaven, as we've just been singing about. And the question right from week one, the question is about identity, the question is, who are we as we seek and as we hope to participate in this kingdom? So let's pray together before we start this morning. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus today. Open our ears, Lord, that we might hear your voice, that we might hear Jesus today. <clears throat> 
And Lord, open our hearts that we might, might love and serve and follow Jesus today, we pray. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 is where we'll begin this morning. 1 John is this small little letter um, that by tradition is written by John the Beloved, John the Apostle who um, was the, the, the longest living of Jesus' disciples. And so the tradition goes that he was an elderly man when he wrote these letters, and it was meant to be passed around these different congregations in the Ephesus region. And John has this really tender tone in, in his letters. He calls the churches, my little children. In fact, there's a, there's a story from early in church history where they kind of carry John out, and he's very old and very frail, and they carry him out in front of one of the congregations, and he says, little children, love one another, and then he's done. You know, that's his whole sermon. And they said, well, John, isn't there more to be said? I mean, you're the last living disciple. Isn't there more? And he said, if this alone is done, it is enough. You know, that's a story from early in church history. But you'll see those, those themes in his letter where he's talking about how we should live and how we live as children of God. So chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence. Is it okay if I ask you to say a word back to me once in a while? Is that okay? Okay, let's say confidence. Yes confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Say practices. Brilliant. Okay. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But beloved, we are God's children now, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What John is trying to do in this passage is he he starts orienting them toward the future. He starts to say to them, okay, listen, I want you to be confident at his appearing. There's something that's going to happen. And then he works his way back to the present moment. And he says, you know who we are now? We are now children of God. And then he says, goes back towards the future again and says, and one day we're going to be just like him. So this morning as we wrestle with this question of who are we in the kingdom? What is our identity? I want to say two things up front. One, who we are now is children of God. That's already who you are. There's nothing you do to earn that. There's nothing you do to sort of perform and so that you become the child of God. That's happened by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? You already are children of God. But it gets better. He says, you know what you will be one day? And we're tempted in our minds to say, oh, I know what I'll be because I know what I was yesterday and I know how I make mistakes and I know how I mess up. And if I were to ask you, are you a saint or are you a sinner? You'd say, well, it depends on the day. And we're plagued with the sense of of shame of saying, maybe that's who I was when I first got saved, but I'm not sure who I'm going to be. But you know what John says? John says, you know who you will be? You will be fully like Jesus. Now that, my friends, is astonishing news. That who you are now is children of God and who you will be one day is fully like Jesus. Those are the two fixed points within this story. We have been invited in to this drama. 
We already are children, and we one day will be fully like Jesus, grown up to look just like the Son of God. Maybe another way to say this is to say that we were made for glory. We were made for glory. Now, sometimes we shy away from that because, you know, oh, glory, that, that sounds a bit ambitious, doesn't it, you know? I mean, I'm just a humble person. I'm just a simple person. I, you know. And we tell ourselves that there's something less. But actually, the Bible invites us to think, to imagine with the language of glory. Listen to Romans 8. This is Paul writing. Romans 8, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. He knows how prone we are to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There it is again, Paul saying it. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, because we all know children get to have a share in the family inheritance. And he says, well, what does it mean to be a child of God? You're an heir in what God gives. Well, what does God give? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There it is. We're headed for glory. We're headed for glory. I think this, this, this framework, this paradigm of glory is helpful in rethinking some of the things that we've heard in church. Because sometimes when you hear it one way all the time, it, it tends to sort of, you sort of tune out, right? You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, confess your sins, get born again, then better behave, and you know. And if someone might be saying something, but you're hearing in a different way, well, I'd like to suggest to you this morning a, a way of seeing this stuff through the lens of glory. So let's think about creation. Creation, Adam and Eve were created to reflect God's glory into the world. They were made to be kind of like these angled mirrors that reflects creation's praise upward and reflects God's love and God's rule outward. You remember the, one of the first things God says to the man and the woman in the garden is, go and reign over this, have dominion over this. Not exploit and oppress, not like that, but reflect my rule. If I'm the king of creation, then you reflect that same glory into the world. We were made for this. But it also makes us rethink how uh, sin, doesn't it? That sin isn't just breaking some sort of arbitrary rule or law or code. And isn't that sometimes how we think about it? Oh, church, there they go again, telling us how I've just been a bad person. And I've broken this rule and that rule, and I can't be bothered. And who said there's rules anyway? I'm tired of someone telling me there's all, you know. And we have this impression that sin is about breaking some sort of arbitrary rule that someone invented a long time ago to control the population. <laughs> but the Bible tells us a different way of seeing it. That sin is actually settling for a lesser glory. Sin is saying, I was made for this glory, but I'm settling for this instead. A lesser pleasure. I'll take this. I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy myself on this. I'll fill up on this. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You've fallen short of glory. That's the phrase Paul uses in Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short. Miss the mark of the glory of God. The glory that God had prepared for us. John, in his gospel, uses the word glory lots. In fact, if you were ever to sit down 
on a long afternoon or perhaps on two afternoons and, and read the Gospel of John in a couple of sittings, you'll, you'll pick up that he uses this word glory quite a bit. In the beginning of his gospel, he tells us that Jesus was full of glory. We beheld his glory. But you know what Jesus says to the people who don't believe in him? He says, you don't believe because you seek glory from one another and not from God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says the stumbling block is not actually that you want glory, but that you want the wrong kind of glory? That the problem is not, oh, how, how dare you seek glory and joy and, 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 and life and how dare you? He doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus doesn't ever rebuke those desires. He redirects them. He says, you've been settling for a, for a, le- for a, lesser, for a lesser, lesser glory. C.S. Lewis decades ago said it this way in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He said, God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. He says, we're like a child playing with mud pies in the slum when we've been offered a holiday at sea. All of these good and right pleasures of this world are, meant, are only good gifts when we don't ask them to be ultimate. Does that make sense? The joy of friendship is a good thing until you ask it to give you all the joy you could ever want in life. Then you ruin that friendship. The joy of a feast is wonderful until you decide that food is the only happiness in this life. And then it leads to what we consider even today as unhealthy behaviors, right? When you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, you turn it into nothing. When you take a good thing and treat it like an ultimate thing, you turn it into nothing. This, by the way, is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is on my brain because that's the series we're in back home. The book of Ecclesiastes is really fascinating. The, the, the writer uses this phrase, vanity, vanity. You, you familiar with this, right? He says it over and over again. And it's the Hebrew word havel. It literally means emptiness, breath, vapor, gone before you know it. It's the same word pronounced differently that was the name of Adam and Eve's younger son, Abel, because his life was just a breath. And so this teacher in Ecclesiastes says, oh, the pleasures of drinking, the pleasures of sex, the pleasures, all of this stuff, it's just, it's just a breath. It, 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 it doesn't give ultimate joy. Do you know the prophets in the Old Testament use that same Hebrew word, havel, when they sometimes speak about idols? And I think that's on purpose. Because when you take a good thing and treat it like an ultimate thing, you've turned it into Nothing. It'll never come true. This marriage, this friendship, this church, this food, this music, whatever it is. Enjoy it for what it is rather than for this other thing. So sin is saying, I want all of the glory from these things. I want the goodness from these things. But then think about the gospel. Jesus, when he's praying before he goes to the cross in John 17, he says, Father, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. Think about this. The gospel is God giving to us through Jesus Christ glory that we never deserved. Glory that we'd fallen short of. I mean, isn't that beautiful? I mean, come on. (laughs) Glory that we fell short of. Glory that we no longer deserve. But glory that we were made for so we still somehow long for. And the gospel is God saying, because of Jesus, I'm giving to you all of the glory you never deserved. 
but long for. Jesus says it right as he's going to the cross. He's praying, Father, I have given them the glory that you've given me. Wow. Now, not only does it change the way we think about sin and creation and the gospel, but it also then changes the way we think about holiness. Because now holiness is not just about being fussy and having good manners and just being proper Christians. Holiness becomes part of moving from glory to glory. Holiness is now, if we were created as this angled mirror to reflect God into the world, sin is like smudging the mirror, right? And holiness is the Holy Spirit saying, let's clean this up. Because as you forgive, people will see how I forgive. And as you serve and rebuild fences and clean up gardens, Bill said this in the earlier service, that's a bit like, uh, like saying to them, now this is what God wants to do in all of our lives and in our hearts, pulling out the weeds, putting up new fences, planting things that will grow and flourish again. All of these are ways that we begin to reflect God into the world. It's so massive because... It doesn't allow us to just say, well, I'm a child of God. Done. End of story. But it also doesn't allow us to slip into this thinking that we sometimes have as Christians where, well, I know step one was sort of say the prayer and get born again. And step two is all that extra credit stuff, right? (laughs) Step two is all that optional stuff about giving and serving. I mean, maybe I'll get to that. But hey, I've got step one taken care of. I've got my passport stamped for heaven. I'm good, right? Right? It's hard to make sense of why holiness matters unless we step back and see the story. And the story is God made you for glory. What do we do here and now? Ephesians 5 verse 1, Paul says it this way. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. I love that. Since your beloved children become imitators of God. But see, it's not the other way around. See, the, 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 the works mentality in all of us wants to always flip this order. Imitate God so that he'll call you his child. No, 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 no. You already are. You're his beloved child. So I, I've been, this is the tail end of a two-week trip to the UK. I was speaking at some things last week. And then, but my wife came with me. We've been married for, oh boy, 14 years. Boy, it's a good thing she's not here right now. But we've been married for 14 years, and we have four children, ages 10, 8, 5, and almost 3. Girl, girl, boy, girl. I wish I had a, a picture of it, but you could look me up on Facebook or something, and you'll see it. Um, Sophia, Nora, Jonas, and Jane. And so Holly, my wife, spent the first week with me, and then she flew back on Thursday to get back to the kids, and I'm staying on for all, all the conference stuff next week just to attend. And... and um, but it's, you remember what it's like when your children are first learning to walk and talk. You don't scold them when they don't know how to do it. You just ask them to imitate you. So that's why parents do all these ridiculous things like, say ball. And, you know, and everyone else in public is looking at them like, you're so weird. You know? And you're like, do you want some milk? And they're like, milk. And you're like, yeah, that's it. Like, it sounds nothing like the word, you know. But you're thrilled. Why? Because they're dearly loved children. And yet, because they are dearly loved children, you want them to imitate. Come on, imitate. Come on, follow. Come on, learn to be like this. Come on, grow up. Because 
you know, when they're rolling and crawling at nine months or whatever, that's really cute. But as a 10-year-old, if that's how they got out of bed in the morning and rolled across the floor, and it'd be a bit troubling. It'd be like, you know, it's probably time you should learn to walk and get dressed yourself. And, you know, I'll show you how. John, going back to one John, going back to John's letter, says a similar thing. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this is evident, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word I asked you to say earlier is in this, these verses too, and it's the word practice. Practice. So why is practice such an important idea? Because if you are now already children of God, and if you will be one day fully like Jesus, all of the learning and the ups and downs of moving from glory to glory here and now is really just practice. The pressure's off. I'll give you an example. Our son, our five-year-old son, is on a, uh, a soccer team, f- football, as you call it. <laughs> then we've ruined uh, um, but I've, I've been the parent coach of his team for the last couple of years, you know, and, and you know at that age you're not really doing much coaching. You're really just trying to get them to spread out a little bit, not bunch together, and then if one of them has a shot, go ahead and take it, you know. But some of the boys, you know, they're, they're really doing well. And so we do games on Saturdays and practice on Thursdays, and uh, it, it's part of the reason I do it is not only for the connection with my son, but because it's as a pastor in a church, it's one of the few ways that I have the opportunity to be out in the community where no, I mean, for the first year or two, nobody knew I was a pastor, which was just wonderful, you know. Uh, I could just be Coach Glenn. And so, anyway, so, uh, so when, when we have our practice on Thursdays, sometimes we'll line the boys up and say, okay, put your ball in front of you. Everyone have a go to practice your, your shooting, you know. And sometimes a boy will come and he'll just, boom, and it goes straight in. You're like, man, that's, that's beautiful. Way to go, son. No. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then another boy might come up, and he might struggle. He might just, you know, his face is full of this ambition for glory. But he totally misses, and the ball goes right, and he, maybe he slips, and he just feels a little embarrassed. It's my job to quickly find that boy and say, it's okay. It's, all right. it's practice. This is practice. It's okay. Keep working on this. That's what this is for. And I wonder if, if it's helpful at all to imagine that when we think about our life with God. I mean, why has John spent all this time saying, behold the love that the Father has lavished on us. You already are children of God, and one day you're going to be fully like Him. So, go ahead and just practice righteousness. Practice this. Rehearse this. Repeat it. Practice it. But the pressure's off. It doesn't, failing in practice doesn't mean you're off the team. Failing in practice doesn't mean you're off the team. You're in. But let's keep practicing this. Now, I think on the one hand, this is really good news. On the other hand, it's a bit disappointing because we were sort of hoping that the Holy Spirit would just zap us and we'd be changed. 
sometimes it happens, right? I mean, we've all heard the amazing testimonies of people who said, I had this addiction for years and years, and then I got prayed for, and boom, I woke up with no desires and no cravings for it anymore. Praise God, it does happen. My dad is one of those stories. He was in advertising for years and years and, 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 and used to, to, to smoke and to drink, and when he came to, to the Lord, it was like the next day, he, he stopped. But there are loads of other people where it's not quite like that. And so it can be a bit discouraging where we're saying, okay, we, we can fall in one or two error, errors. Either the one is to say, come on, God, just do something instantaneous and zap me. Or we, we might say, okay, well, I'm sure there's a rule book. I'm sure that's why the Bible's so thick. And I'm sure anytime I f- I'm in a difficult situation or I'm tempted or whatever, I need to just consult the manual, page 347. And ju- you know. But it isn't like that as it turns out. <laughs> That when you're in this moment or in this crisis or in this place of temptation or difficulty, there isn't kind of a step one, step two. So we're given sometimes neither instant change nor step-by-step guides. Why? Maybe it's because the Holy Spirit works in us through practice. You know, there's been a lot of work done um, kind of in the, uh, the study of habits and neuroscience has been paying attention to how, to how do habits form in people? How do people, what is the trigger and what is the routine and what is the reward that kind of leads people into the behaviors that they do? And one of the things they've, they've learned is that you don't actually, once you've formed a pathway in your brain, you don't actually close it. You just form a different one if you want to change it. So it doesn't, it doesn't do any good to say, stop eating donuts, stop eating donuts, stop eating. It's better to say, when I'm hungry, I'm going to always have a banana with me or something, you know, whatever the case may be. It's kind of like saying the only way to make sure you don't go north is not by standing on the highway and saying, don't go north, don't go north. It's to start going south. Paul said it this way. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, this all sounds easy, but it takes time. It takes practice. Practicing with the Spirit. Years ago, there was an American Airlines flight that took off from LaGuardia Airport, I think, in New York. And moments into the flight, their, both their engines were struck by a flock of geese. Do you remember this? And it was, it was an, immediately a crisis. And Captain Sullenberger, they called him Sully for short, just beautifully guided the plane to, to glide with no engines working, to glide down onto the Hudson River, which was really cold then on the time. And in aviation stories, this is sort of, it's so remarkable because it's one of the few successful water landings. And it's because Sully was able to glide the plane down very carefully and nobody was harmed. Everybody was able to get out and be rescued. It's an amazing story. All the papers in the States the next day called it the miracle on the Hudson And maybe in one sense it was. But in the moment, Sully didn't have time to consult a manual about what to do. There's no time for that. And in the moment, I don't think he was zapped with all of a sudden knowing what to do. The story about Sully is interesting because he actually learned to fly at age 16. And then after that, he was accepted into the United States Air Force Academy, which is right in Colorado Springs, right up by the mountains. And it's beautiful. And as a first-year student in the academy, he was selected one of only 12 who were selected into the glider program. 
And the gliders, you see them all through Colorado Springs. One plane will help them, kind of a propeller plane will help it take off. It's tethered to it. And then eventually, I think they untether it, and then these guys have to learn to slowly glide and land. He did so well in the program that by his second year at the academy, he was a glider instructor. When he graduated, he became a fighter pilot for five years, earned the rank of captain, and then he began flying commercial flights for decades. He was 58 years old when the miracle of the Hudson happened. He'd been flying for over 40 years. Could it be that in that moment, the thing that came out of him that was now second nature was the thing he had practiced over and over again? Look, the fruit of the Spirit are not, second na- are not our first nature. Our first nature is selfishness. Our first nature is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You know. Our first nature is quite, at least mine is not, maybe yours is, my first nature is not that. But the power of the Holy Spirit is that He begins to invite us to practice these things until they become second nature. Now, it could be that you're listening to this this morning and you're thinking, well, it's fine, but I, I, I've, I've got some destructive habits. I've got some patterns that I'm ashamed of, that I, I I'm sure God's ashamed of. And you said confidence at the beginning of the sermon, but I, I don't have confidence. And I want to take us all the way back to the top of where we started. Remember who you are. Dearly loved children who will one day be fully like Jesus. That's who you are. Nothing about the process changes that. Your identity is secure in Christ. And remember who you are by remembering who He is. That's why John says, and I love the, I'm I'm quoting the, the older translations of it, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called children of God. Remember who He is. Who's the one who sits on this throne? Is it an angry tyrant? Is it an obsessive ruler? Or is it the lamb who was slain, who takes away the sin of the world? The one who sits on the throne is the one who made himself nothing, gave his life so that you and I could be called children of God, so that you and I could have glory. Amen?